just in case I lose my voice uh, later on, or just in case this universe rolls up as uh, someday it will, I just uh, want to summarize what uh, I wish to say. And my message is simple. Uh, nothing in this life can be more important than each one of us discovering and walking with God Almighty, who is creator of this universe. It's not, as I said to the men uh, yesterday, it's not a, a question of, oh, I'm not um, religious, that's not for me, because this is a question about the very factual nature of the universe, that it is created. And the epic vocation of every one of us in this life is to seek our creator and align our lives with it. And you know, statistics tell us that 70% of young people in the church by the age of 23 will have left the church. That may not be the case at uh, Taupo Baptist Church, uh, but that is the general statistic in the Western world. And it's very sad. Christianity is not about a few years of good music and good friends uh, socializing. It is your epic lifetime calling. And therefore, you need to know that it's founded on evidence that is compelling. And any one of us at some stage in our lives will be faced with doubts. We will face uh, events that challenge our faith. And we need to know that our faith is not just blind faith, but it's founded on evidence. Faith is trusting what we have reason to believe. And I think that sums it up beautifully, you know. Faith, of course, is central, but faith is trusting what we have good evidential reason uh, to believe. We need to know in this age of evidence that the Bible is not just a repository of truth, but that it is factually true. So that's what I'm going to uh, address in this talk. Now, I'm going to be using uh, some uh, computer simulations, astronomical computer simulations. I need, first of all, perhaps to convince you uh, that um, these are accurate and valid. Now, some of you will re recognize this event. It was the recent eclipse in the US of A. Um, <clears throat> and this is a photograph taken in the town of Farmington in North Carolina, uh, one of the spots uh, where there was a total eclipse. And this is just the moment uh, before full eclipse where the, end, the sky was dark and the birds stopped singing. Um, <clears throat> okay, uh, 22nd of August, 2017. Um, this will just take me a little bit to set up, so if you'll bear with me, and it's forgotten um, home space, home location, so there we go. Right. So this is the sun as seen at um, uh, Farmington in the United States, 22nd of August, 2017. I've set the latitude and longitude to those of uh, the town of Farmington. Now, this computer is too fast, so I'm going to have to slow this down a little bit, um, somewhere around there. 
Now each frame is a minute, and here we go. Something is happening. And you can see the beginning of the eclipse there. I'll try to stop it. Um, I slowed it down too much as it happens, but there we go. Right, now we'll just go frame by frame. And that last, you can probably just see that last whisper of light from the sun is the, oh, you can't see it here. I can see it on the screen. But, um, so if we go back one. Um, the last whisper of light sits down here about, about 7.30, if you think of the sun as, as, as the dial of a clock. Um, and the next one, there is a little spot just down here at about 7.30. And that's exactly what you saw in the photograph. And the time is the same as in the photograph to the very second. Now, there are other things that we can do. So we'd let the... Oh, by the way, you saw it briefly go pitch black and you can see all the, all the stars in the sky. We'll just let that run on a little bit. Now, this program allows you to go anywhere to look at uh, what's going on. So let's stop that and let's, for example, go to the sun. Are you ready? Why is it not activating? There we go. Go there. Getting warm? Now, let's look back at planet Earth. So we'll put planet Earth in the center and we'll lock on it. And there we are. This uh, planet here is Mercury. And now we need a telescope to see Earth clearly because it's just a little dot there. So we wind up the mag magnification of our telescope. And... Planet Earth is still not looking very substantial, but suddenly this blue fella um, hanging there in space is visible, and there is the moon. So if we, and you can see the shadow of the moon there, and if we run this backward, uh, this one here, then you'll see it take its course across the United States um, uh, again. Now that shadow that you see, that's not the total eclipse that's the so-called penumbra, and right in the centre of that penumbra is a small dot which is only uh, about 10 kilometres in diameter, um, in radius, uh, where there is a total eclipse. So if we stop this now and jump out, <coughs> don't save. Indeed, it was about um, 7.30 on the dial. No, my, this is not working. Never mind, I won't point it. If you go 10 miles to one side of Farmington, you don't see a total uh, eclipse. It's a very narrow uh, confine. And that computer simulation reproduces the whole thing in its entirety and with absolute precision. You can check on Cook's diaries, for example. Cook came out not to discover New Zealand, but to do a physics experiment uh, to study the transit of Venus across the face of the sun. You can read his diary, you can simu simulate it on this program, and you find that the very second that he saw the beginning of um, the transit, 
it matches the program. And the very moment that it finishes, it matches the program. And it's all there in Cook's diary. It's wonderful. Now, the great thing about physics, the thing that I really love about physics is that one does not just tackle um, small problems, but the very big problems. <clears throat> and there are some very big questions in physics that um, are nowadays being addressed. The first one, if you, anybody's read Stephen Hawking's book, um, A Brief History of Time, you'll recall that he talks about the theory of everything. And that's a theory that incorporates all the known forces within the universe. The four forces, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and gravity. All into a single uh, theory and into a, a single symmetry. And actually, what we have at the moment is a theory of nearly everything. It's the standard model, and um, it's summarized here, and it would be helpful if my pointer um, would behave. Uh, there we go. Should be better than that. My batteries must be getting weak. I'll use this one. Okay, these particles, they, these are all particles. So this is the electron. Um, this is the muon, the tauon, these are neutrinos, if you've heard of those. These are quarks up here. The up quark and the down quark come together, uh, two ups and one down to make a proton. One up and two downs make a neutron. Okay, Those are probably the only ones that you're familiar with, these two um, quarks and the electron. These blue up here are the particles that mediate the forces. <coughs> Um, and sitting in the middle is the particle that was discovered uh, just a few years back, uh, the Higgs boson that was discovered in the Large Hadron Collider. And that fellow there gives mass to all of these particles here. Without the Higgs boson, actually, we wouldn't exist, and these particles would have um, no mass. So it sort of looks as though it's almost all sewn up. Each one of those has got an antiparticle, so there's 12... 24 um, matter particles, and then there's another four here, and the Higgs boson, that's 29 particles. And all we need in physics to have a theory of everything is to add one more particle. It's the graviton that will enable gravity to be brought into this picture. So there is a big search on at the moment. It's proving extremely difficult to incorporate just one more particle, uh, a theory of everything. Many of you will have heard about dark matter, dark energy, what are they? Um, a big question is, is the universe stable? And right at the beginning, you'll remember I said um, <coughs> uh, the universe might sort of roll up. Uh, it was spread out like a curtain, and the Bible also talks about it being folded up. Um, and actually, it turns out that it's possible that that could happen at any time, because the mass of this W boson and the mass of the Higgs boson is such that the universe is unstable. Moreover, you can calculate the lifetime of the universe and it's about the age of the current universe. So it is in fact true that this universe could just roll up, fold up. All the stars um, collapse together and that would be the end of the physical universe that we know. Um, it may not happen for a long time, uh, but it is unstable. We do have an answer to that question. Okay, in biology, there are um, big questions as well. Um, what are the origins of life? And, and life is unbelievably complex, 
And really, nobody has any idea as to how it got kick-started. Can we live forever? That's a real question, because we understand what it is in terms of molecular biology, why we don't live forever. There are these terminating um, molecules <coughs> on, um, in, in DNA that click off each time there's a reproduction of a cell, and there's only a limited number, and our cells can only be reproduced um, a certain number of times. But biologists have found out how to remove that, and so in principle there is uh, the possibility that cells can be um, able to uh, reproduce time and again ad infinitum, and ultimately that animals and human beings could live forever. It's a big question, isn't it? Are we alone in the universe? Um, I have to say, I get a bit sick of NASA saying they've discovered water on some, um, on some moon, and therefore life is probably going to exist there. Life is just incredibly, incredibly improbable, and we need to understand that. You know, we are blessed with what we have, and we should rejoice in it. Can we understand, can we ever understand life? Actually, the complexity is so much. If you look at the process for translating the information that's in DNA, um, <coughs> messenger RNA is taken from it, it comes outside of the nucleus, and it goes through the ribosome, which translates that coding into a protein. So here's a protein, this is hemoglobin, uh, which is manufactured in the ribosome. And uh, hemoglobin, of course, makes up the red blood cells uh, that constitute the red colour of the stuff on my knee when I uh, tripped over um, jogging. Now, I shared with the men yesterday that in, um, <coughs> in the bone marrow, in our sternum here, these hemoglobin molecule, molecules are manufactured at a rate of 100,000 billion per second. It's astonishing, isn't it? But hemoglobin is only one of 100,000 other different proteins that the body is manufacturing. And all this is going on busily, and we're, and we're simply unaware of it. That our bodies are just teeming with activity um, all the time. We're simply not conscious of it. But we should rejoice in the fact of our existence and the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Big questions in society, climate change, human genetic engineering, euthanasia, gosh, impacts of AI, is it even possible, I've put there, I do not believe that AI comparable to the capacity of the human brain for consciousness is possible. We simply couldn't afford to build the machinery uh, that would be necessary. <coughs> Okay, so all of these questions that I put in front of you, are, while there are some societal aspects, essentially um, at least part of these questions are scientific questions. And life has one huge question, doesn't it? And that is, is there a creator? Are we created? And I have to say that like those other questions, it is also, in part, a scientific question. And whether the Bible is reliable, trustworthy as a historical, moral, and spiritual guide, that's also, in part, a scientific question. 
because it's written as a long, continuous historical record, then those historical events can be checked with the tools of science. And we can use archaeology, history, geography, paleography, comparative study of a vast number of manuscripts, astronomy, as I will show you. So I just want to give you a little bit of a glimpse into how one can apply these tools in looking at the Bible. <clears throat> and I have to say, in looking at the, perhaps the most astonishing um, chapter in the Bible, this is the Nabonidus Cylinder, which we don't have time to talk about. But it's Daniel chapter 9, and there are two halves to this chapter. The first half is about the 70 years of exile and what Daniel calls the 70 years of desolations of Jerusalem and Judah <coughs> during the exile. And the second is the... 70 sabbatical years uh, that are proclaimed by the angel who comes to Daniel. And in particular, the 69 sabbatical years um, until the coming of Messiah. So let's have this. In the first year, Daniel 9, 1 and 2. <coughs> um, Daniel's in Babylon. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm, I often have little diversions, but in the book of Daniel, you see that um, they're described as the Medes and the Persians. You're familiar with that term, the Medes and the Persians. So the Babylonian kings um, were there in place until Cyrus, who was a Persian, defeated Babylon, and uh, he became king of Babylon. He was a Persian, but the army that he had with him was dominated by Medes, and then there were the Persians. <clears throat> and all through the book of Daniel, they're referred to as the Medes and Persians. And in archaeology, they are referred to as the Medes and the Persians. But later, the Persians became dominant. And in archaeology, you see that they flipped it around and they talked about the Persians and the Medes. Now have a look at um, the book of Esther, which is later, and it's in this period of time. And in the book of Esther, they're referred to as the Persians and the Medes. And I just pop that in because there are so many little details like that that tell you that this is, the Bible is authentic, that it's accurate, that it's factually true. And we need to take that on board. Okay, um, I don't think we we'll, can afford too many diversions. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years which, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. <clears throat> now, this, we're very indebted to this particular Darius. He was Darius Hystaspes, um, and the year of this, the first year of Darius, is 521 BC. And the reason why we're indebted is that um, on the mountain of Behustun, um, there is this, um, there's a carving here, and it shows uh, the king with many other kings, in sub all with chains around their necks, and they're in uh, uh, subjection to him. And you'll see there's a lot of writing on the wall up here. <clears throat> here it is in detail. This is cuneiform, and, and, and it says, 
I, Darius, king of all the earth, king of all the nations, and it goes on and on, and praises his exploits, but it's written in three languages. And this chap, this Englishman who was both a soldier and um, um, an academic, <coughs> was aware that this uh, existed, and he went out to it, and he taught himself modern Persian, and then from modern Persian, he taught himself old Persian because he realized that this was written in three languages and that if he could master old Persian, he would be able to translate these cuneiform um, writings. Up until that time, nobody could read cuneiform. And there are two types of cuneiform. One was Babylonian and the other was uh, uh, Akkad uh, uh, cuneiform. So thanks to Rawlinson, this is kind of like the uh, Rosetta Stone, you know, that was used to enable translation of hier hieroglyphics. Uh, this uh, had the same effect, effect, so thanks to Darius. Now what uh, Daniel is referring to when he's re referring to looking in the books um, is this, Jeremiah 25:11. <clears throat> now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, uh, that was 605 BC, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and this nation shall serve the king of Babylon uh, for 70 years. It, the whole land will become a ruin and a waste. For thus says the Lord, this is written later in Jeremiah, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. Okay, so this is Jeremiah writing in Jerusalem. He's saying they will be taken away to Babylon, but after 70 years, they will be brought back to Jerusalem. And you are probably very familiar with the next verse, which says, <clears throat> For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And of course, that was not just for the people of Israel, but that is a promise that we all hold to, isn't it? in our lives. So what happened? Well, Second <clears throat> um, Kings 25 it tells us that Zedekiah, so he was the last king. Uh, let me just go back. Jehoiakim was the third to last king. His son was Jehoiachin, who we'll mention in a moment. And Jehoiachin rebelled against uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, so Nebuchadnezzar came and took him away and put him into prison in Babylon. That wasn't the end of Jehoiachin. Okay, but the king that Nebuchadnezzar put in his place was Zedekiah. And later, he also rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> and in the ninth year of his reign, 589... I can see what the problem is. The end has dropped off. <laughs> and the batteries have dropped out. We'll leave it. In the, uh, where are we? In the ninth year of his reign, which is 589 BC, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Now, actually, in the Babylonian records, they said it was the eighth year. <coughs> and is that a problem? Well, it's not a problem because in Babylonia, they don't count, here's a full year, um, the... The, the, the chap becomes king in the middle of that year. They don't call that the first year. They call that the accession year. Whereas the he and, and the next year is the first year. But the Hebrews called this the first year and this the second year. So in fact, even in that detail, um, this agrees with the Babylonian chronicle. It's astonishing. 
Ezekiel 24, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, so it's the same date that um, Kings and Ezekiel is talking about. And if it's repeated, then it's important. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. So it is important, write it down. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. <clears throat> so this is, that very day is when the desolation of Jerusalem and Judah um, first started. And of course, when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege he, um, to the city, he stripped away all the trees um, from the forests round about in order to um, build his siege machines and in order to build ramps against the city. And uh, the country was indeed <coughs> ruined and destroyed. So what we have to find out is when is the 10th tenth day of Tebeth, the 10th month, in 589 BC. Now, there's a, um, there's a process for this that both the Jews and the Babylonians used, and that is to do, um, when two males first see the first crescent of the new moon and report to the temple, then that is regarded as the first day of the month. It has to be visible. Unfortunately, if two women saw it, it didn't count. It had to be two men. Uh, but so... I've used my simulation program, and, and here, this is uh, 7th of December, 589. I've set the location to Jerusalem, and you see that faint arc there, um, that faint first crescent of the moon. Now, you have to remember, this is sitting on the horizon. The sun has just gone down, so the, the sky is still illuminated by daylight. And I would say you wouldn't see that, but the next day, you would see that crescent there. So that is the first day of the month. So when was the 10th day of the month? Uh, it's straightforward, 17th of December, 589 BC. And that's very easy for me to remember because that's my birthday. <laughs> okay, subsequently, the siege commenced, 17th of December, 589. It lasted for 30 months under Nebuchadnezzar. And as I say, the land was desolated. Jerusalem was burned. The temple was destroyed on the uh, 18th of July, 586. And the leaders, nobility, artisans were all taken away in captivity to Babylon, where Daniel had previously been taken and Jehoiachin, who I've already mentioned, um, was already uh, exiled and he was in prison. Daniel was not in prison. Roughly 70 years later, they were freed by Cyrus, the Cyrus who defeated the Babylonians. Um, and Cyrus uh, declared that they could return to Jerusalem. And there were several waves that went back. There was a wave under the high priest Joshua, and there was a wave under Ezra. And you can read that in the book of Ezra. And I just want to say in passing that all of this is confirmed in meticulous detail by the independent records of the Babylonians. And uh, here are some of these, the Babylonian Chronicle, the Nebosascum tablet, the Nabonidus uh, cylinder, and Jehoiachin. Now, uh, the Book of Kings tells us that Jehoiachin was put into prison, and when Nebuchadnezzar died, the next king, evil Merodach, took him out of prison, and he sat him at the king's table for the rest of his life. So he became part of the king's household. And the Book of Kings says that he was given rations, I've forgotten whether it's every day or every week, but that would be food and it would be money. Now, two and a half thousand years later, 
in the ruins of Babylon, buried in sand for two and a half millennia, was found this tablet here. And guess what? It's a rations tablet. And it lists all the people who um, were given rations in the king's household. And one of them is Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Astonishing. Miraculous, really. Okay, so let's return to what, what Daniel is saying. In the first year of Darius, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years which, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So when did this finish? The people went back to Jerusalem, and a year later they started to build the temple. And we can read about this in the book of Haggai. This is what God says through the prophet on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, consider from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, again, it's repeated, so it must be important, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, that's repeated, must be important, from this day on, I will bless you. That's in 520 BC. Okay, so when is that day? The 24th of uh, Kislev, the ninth month in 520 BC. Again, a separation, Jerusalem, I would argue that that wouldn't be visible, but this one here would be visible as the first visible crescent of the new moon. That's the beginning of the month. In fact, by this stage, they could calculate when... The, um, by mathematical uh, calculation, they could calculate uh, when that uh, first day was. Uh, but this was the test, whether it was visible. Okay, so 25th of November, 520, is the first day of the month of Kislev. When was the 24th? You can add it up. It comes to the 17th of December, 520 BC, and that's easy for me to remember because it's my birthday. Okay, so... Same day, 17th of December, and it finishes on 17th of December. Unless you convert to the Gregorian calendar, you can't see this. You can't see this by um, using the, the Jewish calendar um, because it's kind of messy. Um, it's, a, it's based on lunar months, uh, lunar years rather than solar years. Um, but it terminates on the very day, or does it? Is it 70 years or not? From 17th of December, 589 BC to the 17th of December, 520 BC is exactly, not 70 years, but 69 years. But of course, these are um, our modern years in the Gregorian calendar, and the Hebrews, the Babylonians, the Greeks adopted a year of 360 days, and they simply, every now and then, intercalated an extra month to synchronize with the sun. And actually, you can read about this in, in the Bible. So in both the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, this link is made. You'll be aware that this period of time, three and a half years, is repeated uh, many, many times. Sometimes it's expressed as a time, two times, and half a time, three and a half years. Uh, 42 months, three and a half years. 1260 days, both in Revelation 11 and Revelation 12 three and a half years, provided those years are 360 days. It's actually, as it turns out, the exact to the day um, time period of Jesus' uh, ministry. That's another story. Wonderful story, though. <clears throat> so 
there is this prophetic year of 12 months of 30 days equaling 360 days. So if we apply this and do the calculation from 17th of December 589 to 16th of December, because remember on the 17th of December, God said, I'm blessing you from this day on. So we have to count to the day before. 16th of December. <clears throat> it's 69 times 365. Take away one because we're going to the day before. And in that period of time, there were 16 leap years. So in total, there's 25,200. And guess what? 70 lunar years of 360 days is exactly 25,200. It completes to the very day the 70 years of the desolations of Jerusalem predicted by Jeremiah. Well, you might say, well, that's interesting, but it's not terribly important. But we have to remember that there's something coming up in the second half of the book of Daniel, and this provides the key to unlock the second half. And for that reason, it's vitally important. Okay, so we're going to press on now. Because this is what the second half has. So when Daniel sees that that time of captivity is coming to an end, he prays to God and he confesses the sins of his people and says, we're just a hopeless lot. You keep on coming back to us and drawing us back to you, uh, but we give up on you. We're enthusiastic for a while, but we give up on you and we failed you and we sinned you. Sin, sin. And in the end, he doesn't say the people of Israel have sinned against you. He says, I have sinned. And in a way, he sort of takes all the sins of the nation on himself and prays that wonderful prayer that's in the middle of Daniel 9. And in response, an angel comes to him and gives him this wonderful revelation. This is the second part of it. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah, the prince, shall be seven sabbaticals and 62 sabbaticals. So that's 69 sabbaticals in, in total. And after this shall Messiah be put to death, <clears throat> but not for himself, and the people of the prince that is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, let's unravel this. Seven sabbaticals and three score sabbaticals, that's 69 sabbaticals. I, as an ap academic, know what a, a sabbatical is because every seven years we are given the opportunity to stop teaching and go off and do research, um, usually abroad. <coughs> so it's a period of seven years. 69, lots of seven years, 483 years. And the years, we've found the key now, the years are not Gregorian calendar years, but they are these 360-day years. Okay, so the time period is exactly 483 times 360. If we convert to the Gregorian solar um, system, we have to divide by 365 and a quarter, 365.24 to be more precise, and it comes out to 476 years and 26 days. Okay, when do we start counting from? We start counting from, remember, the command to rebuild Jerusalem. And that command is described in Nehemiah chapter 2. And the command uh, by Artaxerxes in his 20th year is to rebuild the city, the wall, and the palace. It occurred in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So, again, our challenge is to find out what day that was. <clears throat> and I would argue that that thin crescent there, which you can't see, is not the day, but the next day, it 
uh, would be observable, and therefore that is the first day of Nisan, the first month of the year, and it's the 4th of March, 444 BC. So we can do the calculation. Sorry about all these numbers, but the end result is wonderful. 4th of March, 444 BC, plus 476 years and 26 days. There was no 0 BC, no 0 AD. It went from 1 BC to 1 AD, so we have to take that into account. And we've taken into account all the leap years. It comes to the 30th of March, 33 AD. And if we had time, I would show you that that is precisely the, the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the 10th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. It's the day that the Passover lamb was selected. That's pretty astonishing. But when Jesus came into Jerusalem, remember what happened. He rode on the donkey up to the top of the hill and like David, King David, a, a thousand years earlier, you'll remember that when he was driven out of the city, he stops at the top of the hill and he looks back over the city and he weeps over the city. Jesus weeps over the city and says, how often... Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you in my arms like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. And this also, he said, as described in Luke, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, this day was the fulfillment of Daniel's full prophecy to the very day. If you'd only known what would bring you peace, now your enemies will build an embankment against you. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. <clears throat> Big claim here, isn't it? Jesus is saying, not only am I the Messiah that Daniel the prophet spoke of, and not only am I coming on the very day that Daniel the prophet um, said I would come, but he says, this is the time of God's coming to you. So Jesus identified himself with Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. Profound claim as he stood over the city and wept. You know, so this tells us a lot of things, doesn't it? <clears throat> This is something that uh, Albert Einstein said, and I love many of the things that Einstein says. I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. The context of this was an interviewer said to him, look, some German theologians said, have said that Jesus is just a myth. He didn't even exist. This is what Einstein said in response. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can dispose of Christianity. And elsewhere he says, in the teachings of Christ, one has a pedagogy, a, a teaching which is capable of curing all the social ills of humankind. But what we've just seen says that Jesus is much more than even... He says he's colossal, but Jesus is somehow more than just a colossal human being with a great teaching that could solve all of humankind's social problems. Because, let's look at this. In Daniel 9, it says, After 62 sabbaticals shall Messiah be put 
to death, but not for himself. And of course, we know from Isaiah 53, and we know from all the teaching of the New Testament, that his death was not for himself, but for you and me. Isaiah 53, written either 500 years before Jesus or 750 years before Jesus, wrote this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, just as Daniel said of the people of Israel. Time and again we go astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And of course what Isaiah is speaking of is the death of Jesus on the cross for you and for me. Now I put it to you that there is miracle there. There's miracle in black and white in the scriptures as we unfold the mystery of Daniel's prophecy. Um, people nowadays say miracles don't exist. But here is something that each of us can see in black and white if we will take the time uh, to see. And this tells us that Jesus is Lord and Savior and Redeemer of all kind. Marked out by God, God him, his very self who has come to earth to live amongst us and to die for us that we might be redeemed and brought back to Almighty God. It's wonderful, isn't it? Thanks be to God. Thank you for your attention. I'm sorry I speak um, perhaps a little long, uh, but these things are rich and wonderful. Bless you. <laughs>